Glad to have you with us. We're in week two of our series, The Thread. And our goal is when we're done with this series, you to be able to talk through the message of the Bible with anyone who might ask or just for yourself. And so we started last weekend, and we're going to have to do some review now and then. So if you, if you would and you're able, would you stand together with me? We're going to look back at last week, see how well we remembered uh, or how quick of a study you are. And so last week uh, we talked about creation, and so let's go way back in time to when we were kids, whether it was in uh, elementary school or even in Sunday school, and you do motions with songs. You know where this is going? Oh, just groan right now. Uh, all right. So let's, we're going we're to end up like this, okay? So first of all, put your, put your hands out like this, okay? And we're going we're gonna to talk about creation, okay? So we've got to put the sun in the sky. So we're going to say creation, creation. gets flooded. Okay, because that's the fall of man, okay? But God creates it, and then, and then there's a spiritual fall, and then there's the great flood. So ready to try it again. Creation, and this downward motion gets flooded. All right, one more time. All right, very good. Now hold that pose. Don't sit down yet. Um, we have a pop quiz. You're like, oh, great. All right, now you'll do fine. So we have a sequence of photographs from the Passion of the Christ. I mentioned it last weekend. So you look at that sequence there. It's right in the start of the movie. And we have a question related to that. The question is, this picture depicts a common reaction to snakes. What to do with a copperhead? The first prophecy in the Bible about Jesus. C, very good. Genesis 3.15 talks about Christ. And really, it's the first verse that has the thread going through Scripture. Would you say, look forward to Jesus? Really, the message of Scripture. The second question the human disasters, in the name four, the Bengals losing the Super Bowl. <laughs> Just had to slide that in. At least you made it to the Super Bowl. So. Uh, or COVID 19 or Adam Eve's original sin. C. C. Very good. Next question Which one is not a side effect of sin? Family devastation, death, disease, leg cramps. D. D yeah, you're, you got your thinking caps on today. Number four. What doesn't support the idea that creation isn't one and done? Is it God is holding creation together, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, dead planets, or creating me a clean heart? It is dead planets. See, a little iffy on that one, all right? Last question, last but not least. Complete the phrase of the most important ten true words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, give yourself a hand. Maybe air, a fist bump, air foam, a high five, and then have a seat. So I will warn you ahead of time that uh, to get through Scripture in a matter of months, uh, it's going to be kind of like drinking through a fire hose, so strap yourself in. And today we're going to cover about 750 years of history. And so I would encourage you to get the CLC app if you don't have it, because all the notes and verses are on the app, and we're not going to put them all on the screen today, so you'll have those for future reference. Uh, and if you really want to get out of this what you can, then, boy, bring something to take notes with next week, or go ahead and use your phone for that, uh, because there's a lot of things to cover. And every Wednesday we'll have at 7 o'clock a deeper dive of the service uh, in the West Auditorium, except for this week, the deeper dive will be in here. It's our prayer and worship time. And one of the points in particular, we're going to really unpack and build some prayer around that that I believe will be transformational for many of us. So don't miss Wednesday night, 7 o'clock here. So we're going to talk this weekend about the family's path to the promised land. Would you say the family and emphasize the word the? The, the family. Because there is a particular family we're concerned about, and it's not going to be on the screen, but let's go to Genesis chapter 12 if you have a Bible or Bible device. 
Let me read for you uh, the first three verses where God, the creator of the universe, really becomes up close and personal with humanity. In Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in those three verses, uh, the first point is there is a promise times three. There's a threefold promise. And that promise is I'm going to give you a land as far as you can see, north, south, east, and west. He repeats this several times. Uh, and then I'm going to make you a great nation, you and your descendants. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, that promise has been fulfilled in the land of Israel that God promised to them. The nation of Israel became a great nation. Uh, and then through the descendants of Abraham, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you see that Abraham starts the family tree of Jesus. And Jesus came to bring salvation to the entire world. So all that has been fulfilled. You have to realize, though, we're reading that in hindsight, thousands of years later. That was a phenomenal leap of faith. And we see something about Abram in verse 4, his response. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken. He left his dad's territory. And his father came from like what is now modern day like Iraq, Iraq, Iran, around there. Traveled over to like Lebanon or Syria. And then Abraham leaves him there, his father, and then comes to Israel, the promised land. The mark of a righteous person, among other things, is they're obedient. When God says, you go. If God's word says it, you do it. You don't rationalize. You don't minimize. You don't try to make it fit your own agenda, your own expectations. Righteous people are obedient. And another thing that we see here with Abram is that he goes through a name change from Abram to Abraham. And uh, that is symbolic of the fact that the longer you are on a journey with God, the more it is to change you. And if you're a Christian, you say, well, I've been the same since I was 10 years ago and I accepted Christ, you've missed the point. Because the journey is meant to transform you and change you. And so Ab Abram goes through this name change from Abram to Abraham. And uh, he has uh, a son. In fact, Abram, Abraham is the founding father, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. And the New Testament kind of harkens us back to him as our spiritual father. You have Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons that will become the founding fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. People like Judah and Asher and Benjamin and whatnot. Those are his 12 sons. One of those sons stands out in the narrative in particular. His name is Joseph. And so commonly the founding fathers of Israel in ancient his history was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. All of them in the theme of looking forward to Jesus. So let's talk about tests while you travel. If indeed walking with God, journeying with God through life shapes us, transforms us, then we go through tests during that time. And uh, one of those, put yourself in Abraham's shoes or his sandals, if it were, and uh, you're like, wow, God has spoken to me. He has called me to leave my dad and all of his wealth, go to a land I didn't know. And so he does that. I'm going to the promised land. God made a promise. I can't wait to see what it's going to be like, Right? Right? Right, okay, so then you get to verse 10, verse 9, Abraham journeyed, journeyed on, continuing toward the promised land. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. What? This is the land God promised, and there's a famine. Lesson number one, 
There are problems with the promise. Would you repeat after me? There are problems with the promise. Some of you promise till death do you part. And if you've been married very long, there are problems with the promise. Some of you couldn't wait to have that little one and you felt like God just bled down your heart promising there are problems with the promise. Maybe you prayed and got this amazing job and then once you got the amazing job, you realized I got this amazing boss and there are problems with that promise or your educational program or where you live or whatever the case might be. Expect the fact that on the journey of life with God, there are problems with the promise. Pursue the promise anyway. So, Another lesson that we learn uh, with Abraham is uh, that there are tests on the journey. We're going to change generations. But when we talk about tests while you travel, it makes me think, as you have traveled, how many of you ever travel with young children? Okay. They have a four-word test for you that they give you over and over again. Are we? Yeah, you've taken that test, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, when our kids were little, we had a Game Boys we'd give them, they'd play with. Now you got like screens on the back of the seat or popping down from the ceiling. And it's amazing. You're all the stuff you have uh, to occupy you there yet. When you get older and grow up, there's still tests with the travel, right? Um, maybe you have a flat tire. Maybe the reservations weren't good. Um, I remember uh, now as an adult, when I travel, uh, my administrative assistant calls it the Tharp Effect. Uh, because it seems like any plan we have, like on a mission trip especially, they don't work. Like my luggage will be three days late. I have to stay over another night where I didn't think I was going to because of weather. Uh, one time, literally, we had to reroute my flight. I ended up having a connection on a continent I didn't plan to even be on. Um, the Tharp effect, okay? So there are tests when you travel. Another test, if we go from Abraham, uh, Abraham has a son, Isaac. So in this story, and I apologize, you're drinking out of a fire hose right now. Abraham and Isaac hear from God, I want you to, I have a promise for you, threefold. He's 75. She's 65. They don't have a son, their own son, through which this promise is fulfilled until he's 100 years old and she's 90. Would you say God's not in a hurry? Some of you are. You can all aggravate it. He's not in a hurry. Because even in the waiting, there are tests, and God shapes you in the waiting. And so they have this son, Isaac, and they name him Isaac. It means laughter, laughter, because God has such a sense of humor. Uh, he's 100 and she's 90. We have a baby. How crazy is that? And so then you get to uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Uh, came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Say he tested him. And you know, I've had said it before, if God tested Abraham, a friend of God, guess who else is going to test? You, us. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, faithful God. You make promises and you keep them, even better late than never, here I am. Do you ever feel like God calling you to a new season? You're like, here I am, and then he, whoa, I didn't see that coming. He says to him, uh, basically, I want, you to, I want you to take your son, your only son, I want you to take him up to the top of a mountain I'll tell you about, and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. What's amazing uh, in that exchange is that verse 3, it says, Abraham, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and off they went. 
Now, there are several things happening in here. Among them, that sounds awfully barbaric. God is going to teach Abraham a lesson of how he is different from the gods of the pagan nations around him because the pagan religions around Israel, child sacrifice was part of religion, their, their worship. And so God's testing Abraham, how, how much do you hold your dream? How tightly do you hold it? Once you've got a hold of it, do I have access to it? How about you? The dreams you're pursuing, what you just got to have, what is almost within your reach, or maybe you finally got it. What if God woke you up and said, hey, called your name. Got that dream? I'd like it. Abraham shows us why he's a friend of God, why he's a righteous man, because he's like, okay, God, you gave it, it's yours. They go up to the top of the mountain. Uh, he brings his servants. They bring some wood. They bring little Isaac. He's like, where's the, where's the sacrifice, Dad? They bring some fire. They build an altar, put the wood, bind little Isaac, put him on there. You can imagine how terrified he is. And right as, as Abraham raises the knife, God goes, time out. You pass. I tested you. You pass. You obviously do not hold what I've given you so tightly that I don't have access to it. You don't worship the blessing more than the blesser. And by the way, God says, there's a ram in the thicket if you'll look over there. Take that ram as a substitute for your son because I'm not going to ask anybody to give up their son, their child in any way. The only person who will give up their only son is me. And that's looking forward to Jesus. So God teaches Abraham about himself, but he also tests Abraham and finds out that indeed Abraham holds that loosely. And so uh, another tests while we travel, in addition to problems with the promise and surrendering your dream. And when it comes to surrendering your dream, let me just say parenthetically that some of you are pursuing dreams for you or for your kids or your family or your career or your finances or whatever, where you live. God, that's not God's dream. We as Christians often get a great idea or what life's supposed to be, and then we say grace over it literally, and we try to spiritualize it. Okay, that's God's dream. Some of you, he's like, I'm sure what that's about. Some of you do some soul searching. Okay, God, did you really? And, you, and you, can, you can have a dream that's God's, and you can force it to happen and go ahead and call it a blessing. And God's like, well, congratulations, but I wasn't about that. So do some introspection. The third test while you travel is family struggles. I won't ask for a show of hands. I will say, though, all of us have imperfect families. Can I get an amen? And so uh, we see that again. We saw it last week. We see it again this week. And the family struggle is now not with Abraham and Sarah, but they have Isaac, who now gets married to Rebecca. And Isaac and Rebecca are battling infertility, just like Dad did. And finally, Rebecca conceives, and she is carrying twins. And the twins are especially busy inside of her. And the Bible says that the children struggle within her, which reveals the Bible's attitude that children in, in a pregnant mom, those are children. The Bible's pro-life. Those aren't products of conception. And the children struggle within her, and she's praying, God, why is this so? And God says to her, you can read about it uh, in Genesis 27, God said, two nations are in your womb, and the older will serve the younger. Now that flips it. God often takes our world and flips it upside down because normally the, the older 
is the, the boss, if you will, is the prominent position in the family, and the younger ones serve the wishes of the older. God says, no, I'm going to flip that around, and the older uh, will serve the younger. And so time comes, and Isaac and Rebekah have twins, uh, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's name was, the meaning was supplanter, I'd take your place. Um, he's a real competitor, competitive kind of personality. And sure enough, when they're born, Esau comes out first. And, uh, and Jacob is hanging on to his brother's heel like there was a wrestling match just before delivery. And it reminds me, you know, we, we learn now in vitro, now with ultrasounds and all the study we can do, uh, the development and the response of a fetus. And, uh, and they tell us that if you talk to a child while they're still in their mother's womb, you can actually have a positive effect on them. So I heard about a dad who uh, decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. And so, he said, okay, emotional intelligence, EQ, is really important for success. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bombard my, and they found out they're having twins, I'm going to bombard my kids with that message every night before they go to bed. Okay, be polite, be kind, put others first, mind your manners. Be polite, be kind, put others first, mind your manners. Day after day after day, all right, through the whole pregnancy. Nine months come, delivery day comes, no babies. Delivery date in three days comes, no babies. Delivery day in a week comes, ladies, that's like an eternity, right? No babies. They finally go to the doctor. You've got to deliver. They go C-section. They're delivering the babies. And all the way up to the, be kind, put others first, mind your manners, you know, be considerate. Sure enough, that they, they, they open mom up and the baby's in there going, no, you first. No, you first. No, I insist after you. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for laughing at that horrible joke. It's hard to find jokes that fit Bible stories, so when you find them, you've got to take it, you know? That, that competition, Jacob earned his name. It's almost like a deceiver because his brother, who had the rights and privileges of the firstborn, two special things, the, the birthright and the blessing that had not just rights and privileges but financial advantage, Jacob connived and got both of those. You can read the story how he tricks his brother takes advantage of his brother and, and gets the birthright. And then when the time comes for the blessing to be given, uh, where dad is, is soon to die, and so he, he passes on a, a blessing to the firstborn and then the other, a lesser blessing to the other children. And, and he calls Esau, who is a hunter, and he's kind of a, uh, a man of the wild, if you will, uh, whereas Jacob is a, is, a, is a shepherd and a more uh, domesticated guy. He says to Esau, you know what, my time is coming. Why don't you go out and get some game? Bring it in, prepare it for me. I'll pass along the blessing. Well, Jacob's wife, Rebecca, it's hard to keep all these people straight. Uh, she hears that and calls Jacob and says, your father is going to give Esau the family blessing. Go get a goat. I'll prepare it the way he likes it. She literally had a costume for him because he wasn't hairy and his brother was. So I got some goat skin we'll put on you and you can put some of his clothing on to smell like him outdoors. And so, and so sure enough, that's what Jacob does. And he brings it, mom makes it. He brings it into him. He's wearing the costume. And Isaac, who is nearly blind, can hardly see, says, boy, you're back quick. Oh yeah, dad, God had favor with me. Boy, you sound kind of like your brother. No, it's me, it's, it's Esau. Brings him close and hugs him and he smells his clothes. Okay, you, you okay? I guess you feel okay. I guess you're it. And so he goes ahead and eats the ceremonial meal and then he gives uh, Jacob the ceremonial blessing, including all the, the advantages of wealth to the firstborn. Jacob scurries out of there and moments later Esau comes in. Dad, I'm back with the game you told me to get. Here's the meal. Give me my blessing. Isaac is so realized he's been deceived. He starts trembling with, with just dismay. He can't believe it. 
And he realizes, <laughs> I've been fooled. I've been deceived. And he t- says to Esau, you know, I, it's irrevocable. I can't give you the blessing I just gave Jacob, your younger brother. I'll have to give you a lesser one. Understandably, Esau is enraged. My brother did it to me again. The supplanter, the deceiver, stole my birthright. Now he's taken the blessing. Flies into a rage, and the Bible says he told himself, I will wait till dad dies, I'll wait till the morning is over, and then I am literally going to kill, I'm going to take my brother's life. I've had it. Rage just fuels within him. And, and so sure enough, Jacob flees. His mom says, listen, your brother is throwing, he's going to kill you, literally. You need, to, you need to go live with my brother, live with your uncle, and, and stay there until I send word that it's safe to come back once he cools off, like he's going to cool off from that. Some of you have been defrauded like that. Some of you have been betrayed. Some of you, somebody stabbed you in the back. Uh, some of you have gone through that kind of thing in your life, and it's not something you just get over. But there's something in the blessing that Isaac did pass along to Esau that's telling. The very end of it in in Genesis 27, verse 40, he says, by your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. When you've had enough, when you're tired of the fact that bitterness is the poison we drink hoping someone else will die, when you realize, uh, Esau, that all the hatred and resentment you have toward Jacob, who has deceived you, who has defrauded you of your blessing, who has genuinely done wrong to you, when you realize that the bitterness and hatred you have for him, the unforgiveness, I will never forgive him, I will hate him till he dies, the person who's paying the biggest cost for that is you. When you come to that place, and you get tired of what the bitterness toward your brother is doing to you. You will break that bondage from your neck. And sure enough, that happens. Fast forward years from now, Jacob is coming back from living with his uncle, a wealthy man. By the way, he deceived his uncle too. Coming back a wealthy man. And, and to the casual observer, you might say, you know what? How is this? Where is justice? He got away with it. And one of the things we can't stand is when somebody commits injustice, when somebody does something fraudulent, when somebody rips you off, when somebody does something, did something horrible to you, and it seems like they got away with it. I have to remind myself, we're nowhere near Galatians yet, but the New Testament says, don't be fooled. God is not, a, not mocked. Whatsoever person sows, that will he also reap. And I put in parentheses, eventually. Amen. So Jacob's coming back, a wealthy man. He hears that Esau is coming. His scouts have told him, and he is scared to death because he knows what he did to his brother. He knows the advantage he gained, and he knows how wealthy he is, and all he knows is the last thing my brother said is, I'm going to kill him. And Esau will go out in a blaze of glory. He could care less as long as he takes my life. So he said, Jacob, courageous man, he sends his flock, sends his wife and his kids all in front of him as they're coming up together in the wilderness. And, and, and it's obvious that Esau came to terms and somewhere long before this decided to forgive and forget because when they meet, Jacob throws his arms around his brother and they weep. Forgiven, forgotten. 
and his father's promise was true. You broke the yoke of bitterness that your brother put on you. Not by carrying the offense, not by I will never forgive them, he will not get away with this, no. But by forgiving it and leaving it in God's hands and moving forward. Some of you here need to learn from Esau about things in your past and learn to let go and learn to forgive and ask God to give you the grace to forget. So then we have a final test that I would call from the pit to the palace. I mentioned to you that Jacob has 12 sons. And uh, with those 12 sons, they become the, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, people like Judah and Benjamin and Asher and whatnot. And one of those sons is Joseph. And just like his father and mother, Isaac and Rebekah, played favorites because the Bible says that, that Esau was Isaac's favorite and Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. You now get to the new generation of, of Jacob and his 12 sons, and sure enough, Jacob has a favorite. While all the other sons, 11 sons, are wearing like drab shepherd brown coats of the ancient Middle East, Joseph gets a coat of many colors because he's dad's favorite. We don't like favorites. Unless, of course, we're the favorite, right? They hated him. That favoritism was noticed their whole life, and whatever dad didn't reinforce, I'm sure they could kind of create in their own mind. They hated Joseph so much that one day when they were already in their mid-teens to late teens, whatever, and they're out watching dad's flock, young 12 or so year old Joseph comes out to check on them and they say, let's kill him. Sound familiar? Let's kill him. A couple of the older brothers are like, well, let's not, let's not do that. Uh, let's do something else with him. I know, let's, let's sell him to traders that are passing by because they are on a trade route, and we'll sell him as a slave. And so sure enough, uh, that's what they did. And the Bible says that uh, they took him, and they ripped his multicolored coat off of him, and they threw him into a pit. And when they throw him into that pit, uh, they would then take that coat dip it in goat's blood, take it back to dad, and let dad put two plus two together and get ten. Dad, does this look familiar? He's heartbroken. It's Joseph's coat. Blood all over it. An animal must have killed him. They watch dad go into a grief reaction. If you've lost a child or know someone who has, it is an unnatural, heart-wrenching grief. They allowed their dad to weep and mourn for their dead brother, and none of them said a word. In the meantime, what they knew they did, uh, it says in Genesis chapter 27, verse 28, some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and left, lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, whatsoever man sows, that will also reap. I would say the deceiver, the supplanter, Jacob, who deceived his own father, deceived his brother, now has 12 sons who deceived dad, lied to him, or at least let him come up with the wrong conclusion and never correct his grief, and he lived that way for years. I think he reaped what he sowed. God can still forgive us of our sins, but oftentimes he still allows the practical consequences to come our way to shape us. 
Put yourself now in young Joseph's shoes. His brothers beat him up. He can't help it. He's dad's favorite. His brothers beat him up, throw him in a pit, rip the coat off of him, make fun of him. I'm sure they're abusing him. And then they pull him out. And then much to his horror, he's sold as a slave. Can you imagine going from dad's favorite in a wealthy family to a slave? No rights, no privileges, no influence, no decision making, no, no future, nothing. And they took him to Egypt. That's huge because the Bible says before this that God foreknew that they were going to go to Egypt and, and at the worst moments of your life, God's plan can still unfold. Couldn't get any worse for Joseph than being in that pit and now being sold as a slave. And now he's going to Egypt and dad doesn't even know about it. And in that moment, he didn't realize that God was unfolding yet another part of his plan. Read the story of Joseph. He goes from, from being a slave to being in a position of favor and in prison and out and in prison. It's horrible, unfair. And he ends up being the number two person in all of Egypt. There's Pharaoh, the king, and then Joseph because God gave him favor and gave him wisdom. And Joseph shows the people of Egypt how to survive a famine that's going to last for seven years. During that famine, guess whose family comes to Egypt? Dad and his brothers. Read the story. It's a phenomenal reunion there and how God makes that happen. And so the people of Israel, Abraham and now Isaac and now Jacob and his 11 sons and families join in Egypt and they live there. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. So the land was filled with them. They're in Egypt. They're not slaves yet. And, and they're overrunning the land. And verse 8 says, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Say, uh-oh. Change of power. And this new king, you can read it. He's like, whoa, these Israelites are getting so, so large and populous that if an enemy comes against us, if they side with the enemy, they'll overthrow us and we'll be the slaves. So they put them into forced labor. And that is the beginning of Israel being slaves now for almost four centuries. Hard labor. Taskmasters. Picture slavery. Picture forced labor. That's what it was. They're crying out for a deliverer four centuries later, and God raises up a man named Moses. And, and there is an unexpected path to freedom. In the unexpected path to freedom, you can read about it in the first chapters of Exodus. God raises up Moses. He goes to Pharaoh, and he issues, he gives 10 plagues against the people of Egypt. Everything from the land is filled with, with flies, with frogs, with gnats. Uh, the water turns to blood. People are covered with boils. The last of the 10 plagues, God strikes every household of Egypt with death. So the firstborn in every Egyptian household dies. And Pharaoh finally says to Moses, fine, Go ahead and leave. Moses and the people of Israel, they head out to the promised land. And on their way out, the Egyptians are like, here, they take all their wealth, just take it with you as they go. And it's like, yeah. They're gone a matter of days. And Pharaoh realizes, what did I just do? I trashed our economy. I just let 1.5 million slaves, free labor, free. Tells his armies, go get them back. So the Israelites, by now, they are to the Red Sea. They're heading to the land God promised to them centuries before to Abraham. And they're camping on the Red Sea. And like, wow, this is a beautiful campsite. Beautiful sea. 
And then all of a sudden, they realize, whoa, what's that cloud of dust way off in the distance? That's actually the Egyptian army. They're coming for us. We're going to die. And they're caught between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army coming to take them back. That's a rock and a hard place. And the Israelites are panicking and fearful because, see, they're still, they might not be in Egypt, but they're still a slave nation. They're not warriors. They don't know how to, they don't know how to use the weapons. They don't know how to fight. And, and, and then here's what happens in Exodus 14, verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I love it when God fights for me, don't you? In some of your battles, God will fight, and boom, it's done. Other battles, as we'll see with Israel, God fights with you, through you. However he wants to fight the battle, I'm glad I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who loves me. So what Moses does is he stretches out his staff. The Israelites march through on, you know, the, the sea parts, you know, the story. They march through on dry ground. When they get to the other side, Moses then lets his staff down. And well, before that, the sea is parted. The Egyptian army comes chasing them through the sea. Halfway through, he pulls the staff away. The waters close up and the Egyptians are drowned. For further reference, Google chariot wheels in the Red Sea and you'll see some amazing archaeological finds that point to this story. A very unexpected path to freedom. Didn't think that was going to happen. And then as you look at that freedom, while they're in the wilderness, God guided them where they should go. By, by daytime, if they're to travel, there was a pillar of cloud. At night, there was a pillar of fire. So it's a GPS, but it's God's positioning system. All right? And as they go, he also provides for them water in amazing places. He provides for them food called manna. Every day you scrape it up like dew off the ground. It's kind of like a grain and you're making the bread and whatnot. And when they wanted meat, he gave them quail. All kinds of a miraculous provision. In fact, for 40 years, the same clothing they wore did not wear out. How many of you like to wear the same thing you're wearing right now for 40 years? You probably say I dress a little different. But anyways, that's what they did. All right? And so it's an unexpected path of freedom. And where I want to go with this is I want to talk about the, the wandering path to the land that was promised. They could have made the journey from Egypt to the promised land in a matter of weeks, maybe a million people, a, a couple few months. It took them 40 years to finally go in. And the why behind that, why would that be? It was actually God's response to the people he was trying to lead. And when you look at a characteristic that kind of hints to it, uh, in, John, in Numbers chapter 11, it says, Now the people, verse 1, became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. They complained of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And God says, it makes me so angry. Parches the outside of the camp. Why does God, why does God get angry about our complaining? Because our complaining looks at circumstances and makes us freak out instead of looking at circumstances and then trusting a God who's bigger than our circumstances. 
And they would grumble. We don't have water. They would grumble. They don't have food. They would grumble. We're facing an enemy. They would grumble. They would grumble as a reflection of their lack of faith in the one that they were supposedly following. See, because slaves have no control over their circumstance, all they can do is complain. Slaves have no hope about the future or if there's adversity. All they have is, well, whatever happens is going to happen. And so they had not left their slave mentality behind, even though they had left their slavery, at least the physical aspect, behind. So anyways, as a matter of weeks, they, they end up at the, at the Kadesh Barnea where they're going to send the spies out. And, and Moses picks 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the heads of those tribes, into the promised land to see what it's like. Keep in mind, years before, God said, I'm going to lead you into the promised land, the land of the Canaanite, the, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, names all those ites that live there. I'm going to lead you to that land and give it to you. And so... Moses sends the 12 spies into the land. They're gone for 40 days, which is also a number of testing, 40 days. And, and they come back out of the 12 spies, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were like, it is amazing. It's everything we heard of. It's flowing with milk and honey, which is a, a word for just, it's, it's bountiful. Here's some of the fruit. Let's go get it. But 10 of the 12, 10 of the 12 come back and they give a different report. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 32, it says, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. They also, we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim, like, like Goliath, the giant-sized folks. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled. Say they grumbled. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Understand what a mockery of God this is. Understand what an insult it is when we face adversity and, and, we, and we panic and we freak out as though God who led us this far can't be trusted. I mean, you go back to Genesis chapter 20 as they're making their way from, the, from Egypt to the promised land and Moses is on Mount Sinai and God gives them the Ten Commandments. I want to introduce myself to you. Most of us don't know all Ten Commandments, so the first one is you have no other gods before me. You won't take my name in vain. There'll be no idols or graven images. You'll remember, you'll remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. And then if you're, if you're taking notes, the word clams. Thou shalt not covet, lie, commit adultery, murder, or steal. Boom, Ten Commandments. And then after that, the book of Exodus and Leviticus, which is really fun reading, is all the details of how to live. Can you imagine the Israelites when they came out of slavery? And, I mean, there's not been Ten Commandments. There's not been a clear understanding of who God is. God is reintroducing himself, and he gives them, okay, here's the ten things to live by. Can you imagine slaves who lived in forced labor for four centuries? Get this, one of our God's Ten Commandments that we have to follow is every week we pick one day, and we do no work. You're obviously not a slave working seven days a week, right? How freeing is that? 
And all the miraculous things that God did for them and how he provided for them and how he defeated them, how he took them all the way through their promised land and now they're going to go in there and, and he parted the Red Sea just months ago, if that, and, and they go through the Red Sea and he, and he made water come out of a rock and he gave them manna to eat and now when they do the scouting expedition and they come back, what they should have said was, like Joshua and Caleb said, let's take it. But see, people who are in bondage learn to think a certain way, learn to tell themselves a certain thing, learn to speak a certain way, learn to verbalize things. And this nation of slaves only knew how to be afraid of what they were afraid of. And they failed to understand what the Bible says, that life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Because God reacts harshly to these 10 faithless slaves. And near the end of the chapter, in Numbers 14, 20, it says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times. They had 10 crossroads, 10 panic moments, 10 needs, 10 where is God, starting with here's the sea, here's the army. 10 times he tested them, and every time they failed the test, they grumbled and complained. These 10 times have not listened to my voice. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. They were supposed to leave Egypt, pursue his promise, and be changed by the journey and along the journey. And unfortunately, Israel did not let the journey transform them. And so they come to this place, and they are supposed to be, as a nation, at the edge of the promised land. God's promise, that brand new season, that freedom we've all been longing for for four centuries and all the plagues and parting the sea and the way God provided for us until it has led up to this moment. Let's go take it. It should have been a great celebration. Yeah, let's go. What happened? You can be at the edge of a brand new season of promise with God. You can be there in body but the problem is the Israelites, they weren't in spirit. The Israelites might have been standing at the edge of the promised land, ready for, God was ready for them to take it. But see, they, they were, a lot of them were still way back in Egypt. They were telling themselves what slaves tell themselves. Ugh, I can't. They were thinking about all the bitterness they had toward their Egyptian taskmasters. They had no dream, that's not for me. <laughs> this is too good to be true. They were so used to nothing being for them that when God finally opened the door for them, opened the place for them, oh, nah, it can't be us. And, and so instead of having a sense of, of hope and a sense of confidence, a sense of let's go take it, they sat in their slave identity and their slave mentality. They never left Egypt in here. It's probably just sitting by, huh? <laughs> How tragic. Because of that, because what vocalized at the edge of the promised land was a, was a bunch of slaves. Not people who were free. Not people that God had broken the bondage. Not people who were learning a new way. No, they were bound to their past. And so 
God said, fine, life and death are in the power of the tongue. If you can't have it, if you can't go there, if it's not for you, then it's not for you. And an entire generation of former slaves that were still slaves within died in the wilderness that God only meant to last them a matter of weeks. And the sad thing is, the tragic thing is, the disappointing thing is, and after two services I know to be true, there's a lot of us in slavery and bondage today. And you keep playing the same tape, saying the same thing to yourself about them, about what they did, about what you did, about what isn't fair, about it never happens for me, that's the way it always is for me. And whatever it is you're telling yourself and whatever it is you keep saying and repeating and feeling and reacting, you, you can recreate. Here's the tragic thing to what they do to you. Here's the tragic thing to the pain and heartache of life. You can recreate it to be your reality way beyond anything God ever planned for. Unless you're willing to step out and say, okay, I'm going to let this journey, rather than it defeat me, rather than it put me in my place, rather than it make me say, yeah, well, that's the way. No, you're, unless you're willing to take a stand and take a step and say, I'm going to let this, I'm going to go right through this adversity because God's going to lead me. I'm going to trust him. And the past will be the past. I will forgive it. I will learn from it. But I will loosen my grip over it. And I will say yes to what God has for me. And so today, in about two minutes, and as I've been prepping this message and praying, I really feel like this is where we need to go. I want you, in a couple of minutes, after the band sings the first verse, I want those of you that are saying, like, he's talking to me. I'm, I'm the one in bondage. Whether it's here, whether it's here, whatever. Whether it's here. If you want to be free from whatever it is that's holding you back, whatever, whoever it is that's wounded you, Whatever things you constantly tell you, what, I don't know what it is. What you do and God knows, and your heart's starting to be real hard right now, okay? If you want to be free from it in a moment, I'm going to invite you not to wander, but intentionally take a step of freedom and come forward and join me up here across the front as we have every service. And we're going to pray a prayer to break this bondage and no longer act like we're slaves to that. And the season that God has for you to say yes. I'll take the steps forward and believe. So I'll let you debate about whether you should come, and if you're debating, you should. And when I stand up, that's your invitation. All right, I'll stand right there. I'll invite you forward, and we're going to pray, and we're going to take steps to freedom.
forward know the debate and the what if and what will they and whatever and you know the anxiety that wells up until you make the decision I'm going I don't know if what's held you back is the problems and the promise it has caught you by surprise laid you low and you haven't been able to regain maybe you feel like you're tied to the pain in the family and well you'll never get free from that Maybe it's something somebody did. Maybe it was a dream that just blew apart. Maybe it's something you did, whatever it is. But there is this, you know the anxiety, the battle that happened right in your seat because Satan would love to keep you there. And instead, you stepped out and you sort of crushed that fear. And I got to tell you right now, you're feeling good about the step you took. Yeah, this was the right step. And so I want to invite you, first of all, so I'm going to pray for you, but take a moment and just out loud, quietly tell God why you came forward. Well, he knows. He wants to hear from you. God, I came forward because I feel bound to. I, I have, I think, I feel, I react, I carry. What is it that you need to be free from? Go ahead and tell him right now. God, I came forward because. Just quietly whisper to him in a prayer. Maybe you have to name names. God, you know, and tell them the circumstance, the feeling, the thought habit. Tell him. And then tell him, I don't want to think or feel like a slave bound to that anymore. Just, just tell him. It's your declaration of independence. I don't want to stay bound to that, God. Ask him, please, set me free. And ask him to open the eyes of your heart and your spirit to see and interpret and understand things differently. Because you know what? You've been saying it and reacting so much the same way so long, you don't even notice it anymore. God, open my eyes to see the changes that you want to do and make in me. Ask him. Because he will. Now I'm going to pray for you, then I'm going to tell you something very important about what to expect from here. Heavenly Father, we celebrate the fact that you're a God who delivers us. You're a God who heals and restores us. And as these brothers and sisters of ours have, have demonstrated the courage and the authenticity to step out from where they are and say, I've had enough. I want to move forward into what you have promised for me, into a new season. I don't want to be bound by old dreams, old hurts, 
physical dysfunction, the way I used to think, feel, be, whatever, tell myself, I don't want to stay there anymore. I want to be free to move forward to what you have for me. So God, I pray, we pray that you would create a sense of anticipation in the hearts and lives of our brothers and sisters that have come forward. That today is a new beginning of a new season, and we trust you for that in your precious name. Now let me say just a word. When we're done, I've asked the band just to continue to play, and you're free to stay here if you want to kneel, find a place to pray. There are prayer team members that can pray for you. Don't rush out. But let me just give you one word of instruction, interrupt your prayer for just a moment, then you can go back to it. We're going to find next week that God didn't just drive the people out of the promised land all of a sudden, boom, and it's empty. He drove them out, would you say little by little? So you've come forward now and say, I, need, I want to be free. I want independence from this. Guess how it's going to happen? Little by little. You know how you're going to learn to feel differently? Little by little. Because that same feeling is going to come up and you go, no, wait, I'm feeling different. You know how you're going to think differently? Say little by little. Because you have those same thoughts. Somebody's going to say something, it'll trigger it, and you're going to think it again. You say, no, I'm going to change it. You know how you're going to talk differently? Say little by little. It's a little by little journey, and before you know it, you're going to get down the road and go, whoa, I have gone through a change like Abram to Abraham. God has changed me little by little, and I am free. You can applaud that. Now, I try to shoot straight with you. I'll tell you the rest of the story. You have the Holy Spirit and the courts of heaven on your side. That's pretty good. But the powers of hell hate that you stepped out. Because how many of you will admit there was a little debate back and forth, step out, don't, step out, don't. How many did it, right? All right, all of us, okay? All right? They hate that step out one. Because if you take one step, it's like, then you take the next step, and you take the next step. So I assure you by tonight, at the latest tomorrow, they're going to hit you with both barrels to get you to think, feel, react, tell yourself, whatever, everything you're used to. And that's where you're just going to say, you know what, Lord? I trust you. I thank you. Teach me new ways to respond and lead me forward. He's going to do that day by day, little by little. You might have a horrible day, blow it completely by tomorrow morning, and Satan's going to say, you should have just stayed down. Uh Uh-uh. You can say, okay, well, Lord, forgive me. Your, your, your love is new every morning. I got today. And then little by little, you're going to little by little. And by the time you come back next week, you're going to be little by little seven days later. And God's going to do more. You've got to be here Wednesday night because we're going to do a deeper dive into this. I'll give you some prayer tools to deal with it as well. So whatever you were doing, that's off the table. You're rescheduling, you're DVRing it. Seven o'clock, we're here. God's going to do amazing things. Now, I, I interrupted you, so feel free to, to continue to pray. If you'll just quietly dismiss yourself, thanks so much for being here. If you're new, stop by the VIP room. God bless.